Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Lee Davies. Hello. So this week we are discussing Top Gun Maverick, directed by Joseph Kaczynski. Set 30 years after the original Top Gun, Tom Cruise's character Pete Maverick Mitchell is now a Navy test pilot. After a characteristic moment of thrill-seeking rebellion, he's reassigned to teach an elite group of young pilots at the academy known as Top Gun, planning a high-stakes mission into enemy territory. Praised for its action sequences but predictably criticised for its propagandistic themes, it's raking in cash at the box office and earning better reviews than the vast majority of nostalgic Hollywood revivals. And uh, we both fucking love this movie. Super, super fun. (laughs) Yes, so we're coming to this a few weeks late because I was in the UK for a few weeks. We took a bit of a sort of unplanned break, but we had not planned to do this right when it came out because I had promised to see this movie with a friend of mine with whom I watched the original Top Gun a few years ago in my apartment. And I, when we watched the original one, was just like agog with shock and awe at what Top Gun is. And we went and saw this two days ago. We saw it in IMAX, and we both were just like, like our jaws were hanging open with awe. We were just like, Tom Cruise, he saved cinema. He did it. (laughs) He accomplished his dream. Literally yesterday, the day after watching this movie, I was like, when can I go see Top Gun again? Like, when can I reasonably go? Can I go this week? Can I go the week after? Like, I just fucking loved this so much. We are not the first people to praise this movie, nor will we be the last, but um, I was completely swept up by it. I don't even care about the propaganda, though we'll talk about that. I feel like it's so cartoonish that, like, personally speaking, whatever, man. Yeah, I mean, the type of uh, message that they're selling in this movie is not one that's going to have an impact on either of us. However, before we go any further, we have a Top Gun podcast for you to listen to on our Patreon. We went into the original Top Gun in all its horny glory, so you can go over there and pay a small amount of money to listen to that, as well as this episode. And I highly recommend doing that because I found a lot of old clips of newspaper articles, etc. from when original Top Gun was released, and we really went deep. It's a fascinating era and a very amusing film. (laughs) Yes. I also think it was interesting watching this because I think a lot of these updated or sort of rebooted sequel whatever films that are sequelizing stuff from the 80s, like they obviously want you to be able to watch them without having seen the original, right? Because that's necessary in order to make a lot of money. And I definitely think you could watch this movie without having seen the original and have a great time. But it definitely is better if you have seen the original because it's relying on like genuine emotion about time passing in a way that I did not expect at all. And like, the original is not emotional. So to then be watching the sequel and be like, wow, I'm having emotions about Top Gun was just like not something that I anticipated happening. And also, it's very characterization based because most 1980s nostalgia media fucking sucks. Most late arrival sequels suck. I mean, the Ghostbusters franchise and the Jurassic Park franchise are both scourges on Hollywood at this point. Star Wars did really interesting stuff with Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Princess Leia with like enough time they got with her. But here it's kind of in that realm because in the original movie, 
Tom Cruise's character, he's really young, like he's in his early 20s and he's this hotshot pilot and he is really boyish and immature and he is a total asshole. And kind of one of the intriguing things about his characterization in that movie, which we discussed in the other podcast, is that it's unclear to what extent the movie knows how much of an asshole he is and how much the audience at the time understood how much of an asshole he is. I mean, the characterization seems really solid in that film. Like Tom Cruise is giving a really consistent performance as a particular kind of overconfident, like self-obsessed, cocky guy. And then in this movie, you've got him playing the same character 30 years on and he feels really consistent. But in that context, it's kind of intentionally depressing because when we meet him again, he's all alone. He's got this job, which he clearly loves, where he's a test pilot for these extremely high-tech, modern sort of stealth, super-fast fighter jets. And like the opening sequence is him kind of rebelling against the admiral who is in charge of this department's funding. And he's like, well, if we can get this plane to Mach 9, then they won't cut our funding and give it to drones, which is like an amusing kind of fake challenge for him to have. Mach Mach 10. Mach 10. They've already got it to Mach 9, but it's Mach 10 because we love base 10. And he insists on going beyond that because that's just the kind of person. Yes. So he he, he rebels and it's a very very cool sequence where you just see like you really feel the power of the jet like it's I mean obviously the action in this is incredible but like that scene it really feels like when you're watching a really great space movie like Interstellar or something because they're really making use of kind of the width of the screen and the visceral sense of the airplane around him and sort of bits of metal feel like they're about to melt and that sort of thing fucking great scene but that is his tipping off point to get sent to get basically threatened with firing and you kind of see oh yeah this guy is like in his 50s and he has never progressed beyond captain there is characters directly pointing out to him like you should be an admiral by now all of your peers are either out of the military or like in really high up positions in some capacity like Val Kilmer has a small cameo later on and he's an admiral and because of Maverick's personality like a he just wants to be in a plane that's all he's interested in and also he's never progressed really like he does feel he doesn't feel like someone who's kind of stuck in his childhood it's not like a Chris Pratt situation where he's still really childish but he's never got to that position of kind of responsibility and ambition and it's partly because his entire like emotional motivation in this is he's still tied up in basically losing the love of his life at a really early age because his best friend Goose dies in the original film. And then the rest of the movie is about him kind of coming to terms with that death, but more coming to terms with his relationship with the son of Goose, who is a character whose uh, his nickname is Rooster and he's played by Miles Teller. Yes. So I think that's a great setup for this movie. Before we get further into the film, why don't we talk a little bit about how it came to be made. So in that Patreon-only episode, I had unearthed a Playboy interview that Tom Cruise did when he was promoting Born on the Fourth of July, which for those of you who are not familiar, is an Oliver Stone movie that's based on a real-life person that is all about like how the Vietnam War was terrible, to give a very reductive summary. So it's like an anti-war movie, and so the interviewer is like, um, what about Top Gun, though? Because that's military propaganda. Like, what's going on? And he's very adamant about not making a sequel to Top Gun, which I'm sure he was offered at the time, because he was like, well, that would be irresponsible. and like, I don't want to do it. And so fast forward 30 years, and he has made a sequel to Top Gun. 
There is an interview in Vulture that Vilga Abiri did with the director of this movie, Joseph Kaczynski, who had previously worked with Tom Cruise on the film Oblivion, which pretty much sank without a trace like 10 years ago. And he was not the one who originally came up with the idea to do a sequel. Jerry Bruckheimer, the producer, um, and Don Simpson, also the producer of the original Top Gun, had been like, hmm, we should do a Top Gun movie. But apparently Tom Cruise did not want to do it. Like, he was like, I'm not interested. I don't want to do this anymore. He's obviously fully engaged in making all of these Mission Impossible movies. That seems to be, like, the main project of his life right now, right? And they kind of, the producers kind of bring in Kaczynski, who, again, has, like, worked successfully with Cruise before, even if the movie didn't turn out that great. Obviously, they got along. And so they flew him to London for, like, a half-hour pitch meeting. And he says in this interview that um, Tom Cruise calls him after he lands in London and he says, Joe, thank you for coming out. No matter what happens, it'll be great to see you regardless. And Kaczynski says, I was like, oh, wait, he doesn't want to do this. (laughs) And so, like, his read on this is that Top Gun is so iconic in Tom Cruise's filmography and that he thinks Maverick is the character who is the most like Tom Cruise in real life that he kind of was resistant to touching that again, which totally makes sense based on who Tom Cruise is. I mean, it does make sense that he is Maverick in real life. Like, that seems correct. So Kaczynski's pitch was that it be about this sort of father-son relationship with Goose's kid that was not in the original screenplay that the producers had come up with, which seems crazy to me because that is so obviously like... So obvious. One of the ideas they were playing around with is basically Tom Cruise having a supporting role as the sort of mentor, but then you'd have like the other characters are foregrounded, which is not what they've got here. Like Tom Cruise is in the foreground. But I mean, prior to this final iteration, they were still trying to figure one out with Tony Scott, who died a few years ago. So he had a pretty solid draft at one point in the 2010s. I bet part of the reason that didn't happen, though I'm speaking speculatively, is that Cruise seems like he was not that enthused about it. Yeah. Because he needs to be the lead. He needs to be the number one man. <laughs> right. And so... I'm just going to read a paragraph out of this interview, which we'll link to. It's really interesting, this whole interview. Yeah. He says, So the first film is a drama, even though it's wrapped up in this glossy action film. This would be the same thing, but it would be Maverick reconciling with Goose's son set against this mission that would take them both deep into enemy territory. As soon as I said that, I could see the wheels in his, meaning Tom Cruise's, head start to turn. Then I pitched the idea of Dark Star, the opening sequence, what Maverick's doing when we find him, which you were just describing with the like plane going to Mach 10. Which I think was also important because Maverick is still Maverick, but he's not buzzing the tower at the local airbase. He's on the cutting edge of aviation, pushing the envelope as always, but he's alone. He's alone at the beginning of this film. Then I talked about shooting practically, and obviously Tom's 100% in for all that. And then the title. I said, we can't call it Top Gun 2. We've got to call it Top Gun colon Maverick, a character story. So he pulled out his phone, called the head of Paramount and said, we're making a sequel to Top Gun. And it was boom, green light. It's like you've got to appeal to Tom Cruise's egomania, tell him you're going to do it practically. And then he is powerful enough to literally tell Paramount that they're making the film. (laughs) Yeah. Which is why, like, clearly he could have had this happen at any earlier point and was just like, no. But I also think, yes, it's appealing to his egomania. Like, the title thing is so funny. But he knows a winning idea. 
Exactly. Like, he clearly, the second that Kaczynski's like, it has to be about Goose's son, like, that's, that's it. That is the solution to this problem of, like, how to do this movie. And Cruz, if he knows anything, it's Hollywood, right? And, like, his brain immediately is like, oh, yes, that's it. And part of what I think is so interesting about this movie is that it's simultaneously, like, an ode to Tom Cruise. It is the most Tom Cruise movie that has possibly ever been made. It is all about him as a movie star. Like, we'll talk more about this, but it is the most metatextual Hollywood film I've seen in a long time. Like, it's about Hollywood. But it's also, like, it's a weirdly generous film from him, too, I think. Like, it's about him getting older. They do foreground the younger guys more than they have to. Like, he's clearly the big star, but... It's about the character kind of giving up some ego. And it just felt like him giving an actual performance as opposed to just being a movie star. And I think that's why the movie works so well, both as a film and as like an actual thing that's conveying emotion to you. Like I was genuinely moved by this in like a blockbuster way, but still. Yeah. I mean, it is it is a really effective film. And the fact that they use all this like really hyped up music from the 80s really works because like it's kind of nostalgia music but it's also like you need music that's that over the top in this type of film and current films are just addicted to bad Hans Zimmer stuff which doesn't work as well. Hans Zimmer is is, is credited, credited, is one of the like 12 people <laughs> yeah. credited in the music in this. I saw his credit in the credits and I was like I mean sure you've got like a solid 10% of this. We all know what we're paying attention to and it's like Kenny Loggins and Lady Gaga but yeah like you said about the aging thing We've all seen like a million movies that are kind of man-child focused or about like an overgrown boy figuring out how to be less of an asshole. But I think the really good thing that this film does is that, you know, he's sent back to this training school and he has to teach these pilots. And instead of it being really self-centered, he really does buckle down basically immediately and figure out a really good teaching plan to teach this group of pilots how to fly this mission. Like their plan is they need to go and bomb this kind of video game style target in a carefully non-specified location. And like what happened is like the screenwriters literally went to the Navy and was like, can you design the most difficult mission you can think of for a bunch of high-tech planes? So it's like you have to fly really low under the radar. It's really close to a bunch of canyon walls. It's kind of a bit like the original Star Wars movie where they have to kind of go and hit the big generator thing. Very similar vibe. But um, you really see like the way he's teaching these kids and like how he's, I mean, I say kids, they're all like 30. You see the way he's teaching these pilots both kind of from a psychological way and a technical way which is also how the whole movie functions because it does get really technical in its action set pieces and the whole of the first half of this training section it's just going through the route so you're never going to be confused like first of all they have to introduce like 12 pilots six of whom are the ones who are relevant so they have to have loads of scenes where you just like learn who their names are and then you also see like the different parts of this action sequence which is relatively complicated but because you spend like literally half the movie setting it up by the time you get to the final action sequence you know precisely what to expect which means that you can just experience the whole thing in just pure excitement and thrills so it just does that like in a really well constructed way that just feels far more intelligent than a lot of other contemporary Hollywood action movies yeah I think that you articulated that really well and I hadn't fully put it together in my head because as you say when you get to the part where they're doing it at the end it's clearly going to work because like it has to work 
but you're still so gripped by what's happening and it's viscerally affecting the whole time because the way they shoot all the plane stuff which is like they really put all those people up in planes like you can see their faces like mashed you know because that's what happened? Yeah, I mean, they went through all this like meticulous rehearsal where they'd be like, okay, right, today we're going to be shooting this sequence. So you've all got to be looking at this dial at the right point. And, you know, there's obviously a real pilot doing the piloting and then the actor is in the cockpit. But the performance is like far more authentic than any of us is ever going to pick up on. But for the small number of pilots and the slightly less small number of people who are obsessed with online flight simulators like my flatmate, you're really going to fucking love that <laughs> shit. <laughs> Yeah. So like all of that is really gripping because you are feeling it physically in a way that you don't when it's not quote unquote real. But then once you get to that final sequence, it's so much more heart pounding because you have been programmed to know what's going on. And then they sort of amp it up even more. Like there's a point at which they're going over the like crest of this mountain and the planes have to like flip over upside down and then go back sort of backwards or down the other side of the mountain. And I'm like, I felt like my whole body was like levitating you know like it was so exciting and um i was listening to um the watch podcast on the ringer talk about this uh after i watched the movie and they pointed out that there's no music in that entire sequence which i hadn't consciously picked up on while watching the film but is so smart because it doesn't no need it no right? you just need to feel the engines yeah and the music is deployed very effectively in an over-the-top way, as you said, at many points throughout the movie, but they know when, again, like, just the action is going to be enough. And Kaczynski, in that great interview with Bill Gabiri, was talking about how much he talked to Christopher McQuarrie, who is now the Mission Impossible director, who did a pass on the screenplay, and obviously Tom Cruise, sort of about how they did the action sequences in that, and sort of taking cues from that process which clearly paid off here because aside from Mad Max which of course is a masterpiece like these Tom Cruise action movies are basically the only ones in their league of the past however many years and it's because these people really know what they're fucking doing but let us move on a bit to the characters because we have all these supporting characters yes whom we've alluded to the most important two are Miles Teller playing Goose's son, who is a pilot, and then Jennifer Connolly, who's playing the love interest, who is, it's like a very standard role, but it's really well done, and she is obviously great in it. So, well, there's way more to talk about Miles Teller in a minute, but I will just say about Jennifer Connolly, God bless her, she does the most she can <laughs> with what I thought was just, I mean, abysmal. I I didn't think it was abysmal because it's so much better than Top than Top Gun. Top Gun's love interest is hilarious. <laughs> I think they're both really bad. I mean, the Top Gun one is worse, but I thought this was not good. She has like a precocious child that's like such a movie precocious child who's like telling Tom Cruise to not break her mom's heart again. And I was like, please. <laughs> but as I said to my friend when we walked out of the movie, we were both like, well, that's pretty much in keeping with the original. Like, that does feel correct. I don't think any of this is Jennifer Connelly's fault at all. Very talented actress doing, again, the best she can with what she's got I here. I liked but that like, she knew how to sail and he didn't know how to sail. I mean, sure. You gotta give them a little token skill. <laughs> yeah. I did think that he he was pretty sort of charismatic in those scenes, which was quite interesting because he has not been 
with a love interest in a movie for, I don't know, 15 plus years? Like, it's been quite a while. But I just sort of didn't buy it at all, and it felt completely extraneous to me. Like, they were like, well, we must have The sex scene was so funny. I was like- Oh I- <laughs> my god. The sex scene was absolutely killing me, because- To jog people's memories of the original Top Gun, first of all, the original Top Gun is one of the gayest movies ever made. The homoeroticism levels, the way it looks at men's bodies, unbelievable stuff. And also he has that he famously has this female love interest and the relationship there is completely absurd. But also they do have like a full-on sex scene because it's the 80s and you have like sex scenes in movies of this type in the 80s. And in this film, with him and Jennifer Connelly, (laughs) it's like they have sex in a way that makes sure that Tom Cruise and Jennifer Connelly's lips do not physically connect. There's six to 12 inches of space between their bodies at all times. You strongly get the impression that Jennifer Connelly is fully dressed under the blankets. There's no messy hair. There's no sweat. There's no sense of really anyone possessing genitals. And also, Tom Cruise is topless for part of this. Like, later on, there's a scene where everyone's shirtless playing sports, but that's fine because it's sports. But in the scene when he's in bed with Jennifer Connelly, lens flare is covering up the bottom third of the screen. So it's like they're censoring Tom Cruise's nude chest from the shoulders down. And I just found this, it was so comical because it was like, it just feels so unnecessary because it was like, well, it's not like we actually need to have a sex scene here like you could have had a different kind of love scene but the fact that you've put it in and made it this like most comically g-rated censored thing ever with like no chemistry at all was absolutely killing me (laughs) so i basically never talk in movies unless it's like a sort of rowdy situation i could not restrain myself from leaning over to my friend and saying this is like a k jewelers ad which like i don't think that's going to mean much to you as a british person but i'm sure there's an equivalent british thing of like the budget diamonds company that I has was like, thinking it's, like, it's kind of like a TV movie, like a Hallmark, but just yeah, like perfume ad, but like cheaper and like for diamonds. I don't know. It Americans will know exactly what I'm talking about when I say that. Like we both burst out laughing, and it was like, what was the conversation that Kaczynski and Cruz had over how to direct this scene? One wonders. God only knows. I mean, it feels very much like. Someone, probably both of them, honestly, were like, there's one in the original Top Gun, there simply must be one in this Top Gun. Like, the fidelity to the original felt like everyone was very committed to that. Tom Cruise is short in this movie. That is a dedication to the text of Top Gun that is shocking, because he does not allow himself to be short in any films, but... Top Gun was made before he decided he had to be tall, and that is not a tall man. And, like, he is visibly shorter than basically everybody. Love it. I loved it. Obviously, I loved it. Yeah. And I'm certain that was because he was like, well, Maverick is short, so I cannot disrupt the Top Gun universe. Yeah, the only disruption is that Maverick has had extensive orthodontia in the preceding years. Yes. Which, you know what? Fine. He's made a lot of money from the Navy. He's probably had a few plane crashes, so, you know... (laughs) Yep. So anyway, yeah, you got this sort of love interest thing that's a bit silly. Way more central to the plot is the stuff with Miles Teller, who plays Goose's son, Rooster. So there was all this discussion on the internet before the movie came out about Miles Teller and Glenn Powell, because Glenn Powell is cast as um, another pilot whose call sign is Hangman, who is clearly like the sort of Iceman equivalent, although he's not in the movie that much. 
And Glenn Powell is much more popular on the internet than Miles Teller. So the sort of meme going around was like, why haven't, why didn't they switch their roles? Now, Joseph Kaczynski has worked with Miles Teller, I believe, three times. He just thinks, as he said in that interview, that he is one of the finest actors of his generation, which is not a sentiment. An opinion shared by no one else apart from maybe Miles Teller. (laughs) Yeah. But he obviously loves him. He's his guy. Godspeed to them. Having actually seen the movie, I love Glenn Powell, so I was inclined to agree with this. But having actually seen the movie, I was like, oh, no, they're perfectly cast. Like, this is completely correct. Because Glenn Powell gets to have the fun role, even though it's smaller. And Miles Teller, I think, is very good in this. And I think he's fine. I think he's very good. I don't think, I mean, it's in blockbuster acting. It's not like an Oscar yeah. performance, but I found him quite affecting. And like, he looks so much like the original Goose Guy. It is quite destabilizing. He does look pretty which similar. I think counts. Because he doesn't look like a hunk, which Glenn Powell does. Like, all of the other pilots are really photogenic, apart from one of them is played by like a nepotism son, Bill Pullman's son, Lewis Pullman. But. I mean, I wasn't underwhelmed by him. I do think that, like, tonally speaking, Miles Teller is kind of correct for this role, which is sort of hangdog. I didn't really get into him until toward the end. He just has this really funny moment in the final action sequence. And, like, by then you are, of course, invested in this relationship because it's the central relationship of the movie. But I just don't like him very much and I don't feel like he was bringing much to it. I think also possibly I'm feeling slightly negative towards him as well because Morgan and I both also recently watched... Another movie by Joseph Kaczynski, Spiderhead, which is on Netflix, which also stars Miles Teller, and he is significantly less interesting in that film because it's a bad role. Well, before we get to Glenn Powell, I just want to say again about Miles Teller. So we watched this movie, which perfectly fun, dumb movie, Chris Hemsworth. Entertaining. Great three stars. Yeah. I think Miles Teller is like aggressively bad in that film. And I do not like him in general. I don't think he's a very good actor. I think he's fine. I think he's personally as an individual human being, very unappealing. So like, I just, I don't like him. But I actually think having just seen him in Spiderhead, where I was like, ugh, this fucking guy, made me more inclined to like him in this because the fact that he was doing a pretty good job, I was like, wow, like, look at this guy. (laughs) Maybe I saw them the wrong way round. (laughs) Yeah. And I just think, you know, my friend Maria and I were talking about this after the movie. I think the reason he works is that I think they write that character really well. So the setup with this character is that Goose, his father, dies in the first movie. He's a very young child, which obviously would be traumatizing. And then Maverick stays, like, as an integral part of this family. And then Meg Ryan, who plays his mom, dies in the intervening years and asks Maverick to not let him go to flight school. Which, of course, he wants to do because his father was this, like, dead heroic pilot, right? And so Tom Cruise manages to delay him getting into flight school, which the Miles Teller character Rooster sees as this like unbelievable betrayal. Yeah, I mean he him. sabotages Rooster's the, like, career for four years. Yeah. And um so that's the sort of like background drama. He's got this huge chip on his shoulder as a result. He flies more conservatively than the Glenn Powell character, who we'll get to in one second. And he's not depicted as this like amazing great guy. Right? Which Miles Teller would not be good at portraying. He's just kind of a guy. He's a little bit of an asshole. He's kind of just freaked out by a lot of stuff. And he, again, has this huge chip on his shoulder, which I think Miles Teller probably does in real life. And so 
I think I bought him because again, it wasn't a, the character had a bit of nuance. And so he could do that in a way that didn't require him to be actually that likable. And then by the time you get to the third act, which is when he has more emotional stuff to do, you're so bought into the movie at that point, or at least I was, that like when he and Cruz get to sort of have their big moments, like I was fully just like, great, I love this. And I would not have wanted Powell to not get to do his fun stuff, though Powell I did want him so in Powell is so fun in this. More. The thing, right, is that Powell is playing this character who is a huge asshole. Like, he's kind of a bully. He's really overconfident. He's always just saying, like, asshole mean stuff. But he's really funny and charming. And it's not like the people in the movie are like, oh, this guy's so charismatic. The people in the movie are like, this guy's an asshole. But he's incredibly entertaining to watch. It's a great role for him. And kind of the backstory for this is that Glenn Powell wanted the Miles Teller rooster role. He was one of three actors who were up for it. It was him, Miles Teller, and Nicholas Holt. And then he didn't get it. And he was devastated. There was a vintage Instagram post from him where he's kind of talking about like, oh, one year ago today, I found out that I wasn't in Top Gun. And he's wearing like, he's wearing like an American flag shirt. And he's talking about how much he loves America. And when I read this combined with another interview he did about the movie, I was like, oh, this has opened my eyes. Glenn Powell's nuts. Which I hadn't really know, I hadn't really thought about before, right? Because it's like, I was, wasn't really aware he had a fandom I think he's absolutely incredible in the movie Everybody Wants Some, which is hilarious, fantastic film. But apart from that, I'm just like, oh, Glenn Powell, he's one of those guys who's kind of blandly handsome and underrated as a comic performer. But um, in interviews about this movie, he was like, I was devastated by not getting this role. And then I was given this really minor supporting role as Hangman. And I was like, well, I just don't want this. There's nothing on the page. And then Tom Cruise persuaded him to get this role by being like, look, how do you think I got to be the person I am? And Glenn Powell was like, well, you picked great roles. And he was like, no, I picked great movies. And then whatever role I have in it, I make that a great role. And Tom Cruise kind of helped him, not in an acting sense, but like allowed him to bump up that role. They like put a bit more meat on it in the script. And Glenn Powell like really did make it his own. So they kind of elevated what would have been a background character that seemingly just kind of vanished off into the distance in the final act into this really integral, by far the most memorable member of the sporting cast. Because there was like, you know, five other pilots in it. And they're all just like, well, there's several other pilots. One of them's the girl one. <laughs> one of them's Bill Pullman's son. And then there's a few others. But Glenn Powell is just super, super entertaining. And he gets like a great little final act finisher in it. But yeah, like these interviews with Glenn Powell, it makes it really clear that A, he idolizes Tom Cruise and wants Tom Cruise's literal career, which he explicitly says. And um, B, it was clearly hell for him to wait for two years as this movie was delayed by COVID because he's been waiting for his big break for a long time and he is over 30. <laughs> I felt really bad for him because I follow him on Twitter and he, he doesn't post that much. I mean, he's posting a lot recently, but like I just was aware of this situation and was like, oh, this man is not in a great place. Like he just really wants this movie to come out. The main thing I know about Glenn Powell well, A, great actor. B, chronic name searcher on Twitter. That man searches his own name all the fucking time. Not good. It's time to hand that social media account over to an assistant ASAP. Yep. Get off the internet, sir. You are too famous now. You need to stop. But the sort of actor brain where you just need attention all the time, which, I mean, it is what it is. And to have that movie then delayed for years when you know it's going to be this big thing, I just, that's, I have sympathy. He interestingly has another Navy pilot movie coming out later this year that he produced that 
I think the main character in that is played by Jonathan Majors. It's a historical drama based on a real person. I maybe like the first black person who was in that part of the Navy. I'm not sure. But um, two in one year is quite funny. He loves America, apparently. He sure does. I mean... Richard Linklater has cast him in multiple films, I believe, which to me is an endorsement of character. I mean, I was thinking like in an alternate universe, he has the Chris Pratt roles, but obviously a lot of the Chris Pratt roles are pure garbage. So who can say? Yeah. So we'll be curious to see what becomes of him. I love him and everybody wants him too. That's the first thing I'd seen him in. And I was just like, this man is wonderful. So I hope he gets to do more kind of along those lines of like interesting, quirky stuff as opposed to pure Tom Cruise malarkey i do want to shout out john ham as well who plays the like middle manager who has to deal with all <laughs> quintessential of these, just, like, disapproving lunatics. conservative commanding officer who's like tom cruise i'm gonna bump you down to a private and fire you from the air force for being a rude boy well i mean there's a lot of don draper in this performance and that's because john ham's true calling is playing a boss and just being like what the fuck? Why must I deal with these people? But I think what works about that performance, A, John Hamm is very talented. But B, it's like, he's not actually being that unreasonable. No, right? no. He's in <laughs> fact being very reasonable. But you also are kind of like resentful of him because of course you're on Maverick's side. And so there's this like combination of like, you can understand this guy's perspective. There's also like a second middle manager guy with him who is similarly like, secretly like rooting for tom cruise but has to pretend like he's not but they i don't know ham just is like good enough that you kind of can sympathize with his frustration while also being like i do hope you lose though so i thought he was a really good sort of like texture in the movie as well and then before we get into cruise more because there is more to talk about with cruise i think we should mention val kilmer who shows up for one scene he's sort of referred to throughout yeah, the movie they as have this like text like, message conversations with him and yeah. then he gets this one cameo where essentially like they make it really clear that he's been propping up maverick's career for years every time maverick fucks up his pal iceman who is now very high up on the military food chain will kind of drag him out of trouble and <laughs> keep him in the military but at this point you know he is living with an age-appropriate 50-something wife in a huge house and he is he's had like cancer and he's clearly got cancer again and during this meeting like they reveal like he is now gonna die and it's kind of mirroring Val Kilmer's real life medical issues because over the past few years he had cancer as well and he can no longer speak vocally so what they do is like they have him perform this scene typing most of his dialogue and then they have him kind of whisper some but like they did a sort of computer-generated voice recreation from old recordings of Val Kilmer's voice so he could like say a few lines out loud and I mean it really works I love Val Kilmer as an actor it's a small role like it's not a particularly taxing role but it just works really effectively kind of within the context of him as a star and in the franchise in a way that doesn't feel really corny like a lot of this kind of cameo often does I found it very moving they in that interview that we keep referencing Cruz hadn't seen him in a long time. I don't know how much a long time is, but at least like several years. And I think like obviously knew what was going on, but it sounded like he was quite affected by seeing him because he's he's not doing very well. And um, like the emotion comes across in the film, I think, of the real people. And 
a lot of what made the movie work for me, aside from just, like, the sheer pyrotechnics, which we've talked about, which are incredible, like, it's such a pleasure to watch, was that, A, it had actually seriously thought about the original film in, like, a deep way and tried to engage with it, which I think a lot of these reboot, revamped, whatever movies only do in the most superficial ways. And, again, that it was, like, actually about people getting older and that sometimes that means, I mean, eventually it means all of us dying, right? But, like, they kept showing a sort of picture of... Tom Cruise and Val Kilmer from the end of the first Top Gun. And the first time they showed it, the audience kind of laughed because it was a bit, like, it's a bit campy, right? To have this, like, enormous picture from the end of Top Gun on, like, the wall of, of Top Gun in the movie. But they kept showing it, and it kind of got less funny as the movie went along, I think, because you're seeing these young, unbelievably beautiful people. And, like, Tom Cruise, obviously is still very handsome because God only knows what I mean, he's, is, like, I would describe on. him as calcified. Yes. But, like, he looks visibly, yeah, obviously, yeah. like, way older than he did 35 years ago. And one of the things I liked about the movie was that even though he obviously has had, you know, whatever work done, like, you can see wrinkles and pores and stuff on his yeah. face. They're not trying to pretend like he's super young. I mean, the thing about the photos that really worked for me is we've all seen so many movies where... You know, they have these flashback photos. And a lot of the time what I have going on in my head is just like, this seems really stupid because you're assuming that this one thing that happened to them 20 years ago is the most important thing in their life. And it feels really absurd that you're overemphasizing the importance of that when it's only important in the minds of the viewer. And then you watch this movie and you're like, oh, it really fucking makes sense psychologically for this man to have a shrine to his dead best friend in his garage, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and then with the Val Kilmer stuff, like, Val Kilmer looks old and, like, frail. And he was such a god yeah. at the time. And having just watched that And they have him movie, dressed old as know. well. Like, he has an old man's yeah. house. And he has, as I said, age-appropriate wife. And he's wearing a scarf and stuff. Yeah. It's essentially the opposite of what they're trying to do with Indiana Jones, where they have this kind of pantomime theater of him being like oh i'm old and i've got creaky knees because like of course harrison ford looks absolutely ancient and they're like well you know i'm old now i ought to be retired from the action sequences and you watch it and you're like this movie shouldn't be made and also it's completely absurd well we don't know what they're gonna do with the next one i certainly hope to god that he will not be you know endangering himself i mean he's definitely seriously injured himself while making this movie already as he did with star wars but yeah i had i remember the star wars one i didn't know about this new one but i'm not shocked but yeah i just found the movie's willingness to confront that openly really affecting and again the fact that it's a tom cruise movie that's doing this is so shocking to me because this man has been like i will not age i will just keep doing these (laughs) These impossible, like, stunt-ridden blockbusters forever. I mean, forever. Morgan Davies's uh, motto is Tom Cruise will die in a stunt. <laughs> I fully believe this to be true. Like, I think it's how he wants to go. I think he believes that he's immortal because of Scientology, so I don't think he's that concerned about it. Like, that's he's my He's now 59, and with the exception of this film, almost all of his movies have strongly implied for the past decade that he is 38 and will remain 38 for the rest of his life. Yeah. Which is what made this so shocking. Like, my friend, as we were walking out, was like, what is he trying to tell us? Like, I mean, what is, I'm what is excited to watch the next Mission Impossible movie, which, of course, looks absolutely baller. 
and see whether he is 38 in that, because I strongly assume that he is still 38 in that. Well, they're making- they were shooting two of them at once, which is why, like, I mean, they basically- just we're like we're just gonna shoot these forever until paramount gives us the money that we need to complete them which i respect but i think they've said that this is it oh yeah he's like shot I'm them done consecutively with this. and like that's it which correct because he he will die. i mean at some point i think paramount is like look our insurance premiums are gonna go through the roof if we send tom cruise to space and he stays there right yep but part and parcel of this movie really thinking about getting older is the fact that it is pretty much explicitly a movie about Tom Cruise, the movie star. And I think this is why the sort of like Navy propaganda stuff, I was basically completely unbothered by. Like we will talk about that in a minute, but I was sort of like, well, number one, it's Top Gun. So like, you kind of know what you're getting yourself into. But number two that element of it felt, even though they're like meticulously trying to do things correctly with the planes and everything, like it felt so sort of fake to me. Like Kaczynski literally says, like it's a sports movie, it's not a war movie, and I was like, yeah. correct. Like, I mean, that- I find all the stuff around Captain Marvel far more distasteful because the stuff with Captain Marvel feels like an actually effective recruitment tactic because you're directly kind of drawing a line between feminist empowerment and young girls and joining the air force and with this movie as i said the two prongs are the implicit message that it's very good to fund a bunch of f-35s which is of course comical and join the naval aviators and i just feel like at this juncture people already know that it's cool to be a pilot (laughs) and also every teenager in the country is being fucking pressured by military recruiters Right. Like, I don't think that this movie is going to make much of a dent. Congress yeah. is going to I think it's going to be very effective regardless. on the egos of people who work in the naval aviators. And otherwise, I don't think it's that much of an effective tool, especially yeah. compared to the past 20 years of hideous Iraq war propaganda movies, you know? Right. Like, I think Marvel is way worse on this front than this film, which is so cartoonish, particularly because... It is, I mean, not that everyone watching it is going to see it this way, like, because, like, we're film critics, so of course we're attuned to this, but it is so clearly a movie about Tom Cruise and Hollywood. All of the rhetoric in this film, which, like, I had heard about beforehand, but until you've seen it, you can't really understand, where they're like, he's the only man who can save us. Like, there's just (laughs) one person. This unique guy with his skills, and, like, John Hamm's like, no, we need to give all of our budget to CGI. I mean, drones. (laughs) But the thing is, all of that's true. Like, he is literally the last man standing. He is the last movie star of his kind. And there's, like, a weariness in the performance that felt connected to what he has decided to do with his career that felt sort of real to me, to who he is as a person. And... Obviously, there's so much about Tom Cruise's personal life that is bad, but I find his, like, decision to just take the mantle of Hollywood cinema upon his singular back kind of, like, weirdly moving. Like, he just was like, I must save movies. Well, it's no him one and else Christopher Nolan. It. Right. Oh, yeah. It's the two of them, right? And that is an egomaniacal thought and gesture. But on the other hand, literally no one else is out there with this capacity, right? And so watching him sort of 
destroy himself in the effort and the fact that the movie is about him kind of trying to like train the younger generation and then becoming willing to sacrifice himself for them but also it's all about how he is still the best (laughs) i just found the whole thing really fascinating on a metatextual level and like I think it's one of the greatest, like, star texts that Hollywood has basically ever produced. Like, this is the most Tom Cruise movie of all the Tom Cruise movies, even though he barely gets to run in it. And that's his main thing. When they get the running in at the end, I'm like, gotta get it in there. (laughs) Yeah. And, like, I did leave the theater with this feeling of, like euphoria right like it's just so such a glorious experience i mean that final action sequence is so so good which we're not used to seeing because part of the reason why people are so nuts about mad max fury road and the most recent mission impossible film is because the vast majority of mainstream blockbusters of course as we all know have terrible action yeah and in this, so basically what happens is that you think briefly that Maverick might be dead. I fully, I, for the final 20 minutes, half an hour of this movie, I kept being like, Maverick's gonna fucking die. He's gonna I die. I thought they were gonna kill him. Yeah. Yeah. Because it would be totally in keeping with yeah. the tone of the film. And they couldn't kill anybody else because there's like a black pilot and a female pilot and then there's Miles Teller and you can't kill any of those people. So like... Tom Cruise is actually the best option. I'm like, oh, Glenn Powell, he's, you can kill him. And it's like, no, they keep Glenn Powell back at the base because the whole point is like this whole competition within the students is there's like 12 pilots and only six of them can go on the mission. So you've got like Miles Teller and in the end, Tom Cruise and the girl one and a bunch of others, you know? <laughs> right. So Maverick's plane goes down. And I was like, oh my God, they've actually killed him off. Which yeah. I think would have been quite bold. Yeah. But of course he survives. And then there's like the extra action sequence at the end, which I initially was like, oh my God, we're doing another one. But then they did it and I was like, no, this is It's great. It does need this because it gets him and Teller in the plane together in the same formation that he and Goose would have been flying in, in the same old plane. Yes. That they flew in. Closure. Yes. And- The whole time I was watching it, I was like, I hate all these reboots and sequels so much. And yet I'm watching this movie and just like loving it. Because it's good. Like that's literally why, right? (laughs) Yep. It literally, you just make a good movie that again is like actually thinking seriously about the original and doing something that is both faithful and new. And most importantly, is entertaining. (laughs) And like, It doesn't fucking matter if it's a sequel. And, like, this movie's made a billion dollars worldwide, and it has not done that because it's a Top Gun movie. It's because it's a Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, because I truly, when I saw the trailers for this, I was like, I could not give less of a shit about Top Gun 2, especially, like, the tone of it, because, like, the whole appeal of the original Top Gun is, like, just the incredible vibes, right? Which they're obviously not recreating this because this is an action-focused film. But then as soon as the reviews started coming in, I was like, oh, okay, actually, I do need to see Top Gun Maverick, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I really love the original Top Gun, but the reason that I... Like, we were, we, you know, we messaged about this and you were really skeptical and I was like, no, 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 because it's Tom Cruise, it will be good. And that, like, that was my motivation, not because... I'm, like, so desperate to even see him, although I find him really magnetic as a screen presence, especially when he's doing one of his, like, action roles these days. But he is, at this stage in his career, such a guarantor of quality, right? And I think other people know that, too. 
And the word of mouth on this was fucking through the roof, right? Everyone who sees this is like, you got to go see it. Like, I've been telling everyone they have to go see it. And people are going back to see it a second time because it's so much fun. Not that it's easy to make a good movie or a great movie. Like, it definitely isn't. But the idea that what you should do is to make a good movie and then people will want to go see it isn't actually that complicated. And yet it seems like that has been lost <laughs> in, like, the shuffle, right? I would just like to say as a postscript to you saying Tom Cruise is such a seal of, of, of approval is how recent that is. Because I know. 2018 yeah. Mission Impossible Fallout, which was incredible. But literally before that, we're in the fucking dregs. 2017, he made The Mummy, famous stinker, an American made, a film that was just like, I don't think anyone watched that. Prior to that, Jack Reacher, Never Go Back. I mean, actually, the 2010s were not the best era for him. But he's dragged out because now he's making, like, he is personally making these movies himself. Yeah. You know, he's essentially co-directing, as we have often discussed. And, um... And because he's so obsessed with all this kind of meticulous live action choreography shit and like all the technical stuff, he's managed to rebuild his brand quite effectively. Yes. And interestingly, like part of the reason why he maintained that relationship with Paramount and maintained his status as an A-lister was that his profile took a nosedive in the United States for quite a long time, partially because of the Scientology stuff and his personal relationships and the fact that his movies weren't as good. But he was, like, the number one star. Will Smith was always really good at this, too, but Tom Cruise was undefeated at being a global star. He was the most, like, the highest box office person in India for, like, decades. I'm yeah. sure that's still true. At least among, like, Western Western stars. And so he had the global box office to sort of back him up. And now that his profile has sort of swung up again in the United States... It's very easy to sort of erase that. Because as you say, it's literally just two movies in a row. But I think that Fallout and all of the press around Fallout was so convincing. And the fact that he is in charge of everything now is like, yeah, I will. I believe that you are not going to let this suck. And I think he's stopped experimenting, which is actually probably good. Because he knows exactly what he wants to do. And he's executing that. Yeah. But when his body gives out, I have no idea what's going to happen. Because like then what? What will he tell us with the next one? Like, will he admit to be old? I mean, two Mission Impossibles, 2023 and 2024, currently, you know, the trailer's out. The main claim to fame for this film, for me, is the fake relationship he's been staging with Hayley Atwell for the past two years, which was also prolonged by COVID. Um, they did break up recently, quote unquote yes. break up. I think several months ago that, yeah. was, that was concluded. My favorite part of that was when they went to Wimbledon <laughs> with another person from the film. I was like, I mean, they seemed to be having a great time, but I was like, this isn't a date. This is three people Just at Wimbledon. incredible yeah. stuff. Yep. So yeah, we imagine that most of you have seen Top Gun Maverick at this point, but if for some reason you haven't and are still listening to this podcast... Do yourself a favor and go see it because... Yeah, the greatest so movie fun. of the year with a completely unidentified villain. Oh my god, yeah. I mean, we sh we should mention that they literally are just wearing black suits that cover their entire faces. Yeah, they don't specify if it's like a country or a mysterious terrorist organization that can somehow afford the most expensive plane technology on Earth. It is any location that could be Russia, but could be anywhere that has snow and mountains. Could be Luxembourg. It's like snow and mountains that has an ocean quite close to those snow and mountains. Like, obviously the planes fly very fast, but they get there rapidly yeah 
away from the ocean that seems hot, and then they're at snowy mountains almost immediately. It's a mystery. I think it's specifically designed to be impenetrable. Like, they don't. I mean, there were people online who were like, well, it's obviously X country. And I was like, I don't think that that's true. <laughs> I think this that's This is a video game think. landscape that they have created. Yeah. And unless you're making a World War II movie, the best type of war movie to advertise the American military is one where the enemy is someone who's not a specific nation attached to a specific political thing. Because otherwise people can be like, well, we were really bad in that war. But in this one, they were the perfect boys because all they had to do was blow up a little square on the ground which didn't have any people in it. And the people who did get killed deserved to die because they were all individually in honourable dogfights in airplanes as equals. Yeah, correct. Correct. It's a video game. Yeah. It's a video game. Yeah, great stuff. Can't wait to see it again. So next week, we are doing a very different kind of film. We are doing a listener request for The Court Jester, which is a delightful 1955 musical comedy, which is in the medieval fairy tale genre. It stars the classic comedy musical actor Danny Kaye. It also has Basil Rathbone and Angela Lansbury. It is a classic, which I believe many people probably watch like on TV at Christmas, that sort of thing. I saw it for the first time last year and was very entertained. Um, It's got some fun slapstick. It's got some fun songs with silly puns in them. 1955, directed by Melvin Frank and Norman Panama, two very 50s names. Um, (laughs) So enjoy that next week. Yes. And that we'll also be able to talk about, you know, actors doing incredible bodily feats in that movie. I have no doubt because mid-century musicals, astonishing stuff. I've never seen that movie, so I'm very excited too. Thank you guys, as always, for listening. Uh, If you would like to listen to our Top Gun bonus episode, you can do that at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on The Daily Dot, where I recently reviewed Joseph Kosinski's new movie on Netflix, Spiderhead. And you can find my work on Bustle, and you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod. Our Tumblr is OverinvestedPodcast, and our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.